Hello, I'm Kate Chesterman. I'm a GP in South Norfolk and I also co-host the GP Notebook Education Study Groups. You can follow me on Twitter at ChestermanKate for more information about these study groups and new podcasts as they become available. Welcome to this next edition of the GP Notebook podcast, where today I'm going to be discussing gynecomastia, which is a common presenting complaint in primary care and also a common reason for referral to secondary care. Now, I think in general practice, we're often asking the question, who do I need to be worried about? And this question is pertinent to gynecomastia, as not every man with gynecomastia has a pathological cause. So the questions I'm going to try and answer in the next 15 minutes or so are which men with gynecomastia do we need to be concerned about? And having identified that cohort, what investigation should we consider? When should we consider a referral? And if I am referring, then who should I be referring to? Because actually not all men with gynecomastia need to go to the breast team. And finally, with what degree of urgency does that referral need to happen? So back in April of this year, there was a great article in the BJGP that discussed gynaecomastia and when and why to refer. And it also highlighted a very useful infographic called Guidance on Gynaecomastia that has been produced by the Association of Breast Surgery and endorsed by the RCGP. I've put a link to this article and the infographic in the show notes for this podcast, and I hope that this will be a really helpful resource for you. So very briefly, what is gynecomastia and why does it occur? Well, gynecomastia is the enlargement of male glandular breast tissue, and it's caused by an imbalance between the sex hormones, testosterone and oestrogen. Oestrogen causes breast tissue to grow. And while all men produce some oestrogen, they usually have much higher levels of testosterone, which prevents growth of the breast tissue. Now, sometimes the cause of this imbalance between oestrogen and testosterone is unknown. And it's worth noting that around 25% of gynecomastia cases are idiopathic and no cause is found. So, we've said that gynecomastia occurs due to an imbalance of oestrogen and testosterone. And this imbalance can occur physiologically at three distinct times in a man's life. It can occur in newborns due to a placental transfer of oestrogen to the baby. It can occur in adolescent boys due to a delay in testosterone secretion. And in men over the age of 50, it can also occur due to a natural decline in their levels of testosterone. And about 25% of cases of gynecomastia are physiological in nature. So 50% of cases are either idiopathic or physiological, but what about the rest? Well, the next most common cause is drugs, and there really are a wide range of medications that can cause gynaecomastia. And a lot of these medications are frequently prescribed in primary care and include common antihypertensives such as spironolactone and the calcium channel blockers, antiangiogens like finasteride, GI meds such as PPIs and H2 histamine blockers, and also analgesics like opioids. And then there are less commonly prescribed meds as well, such as some of the antipsychotics and antiretroviral drugs, and these can also be implicated. And it's also worth remembering that illicit and recreational drugs, such as amphetamines, cannabis and alcohol, can also cause gynecomastia. 
on the infographic I mentioned earlier, there's a link to a list of drugs and medications that can cause gynecomastia. And it's well worth having a click on this link, and having a little look down the list. But gynecomastia can also have pathological causes. So underlying health conditions that can be associated with gynecomastia include adrenal or testicular tumours. And these are particularly worth considering if a man presents with rapid breast enlargement. Endocrine causes such as thyrotoxicosis, primary or secondary hypogonadism or hypoprolactinemia can also cause gynecomastia. As can systemic illness such as liver disease, renal failure, malnutrition, obesity and HIV. So because of the wide range of conditions that can cause gynecomastia, we need to be taking a thorough history. And the article suggests that we particularly ought to be asking about the duration of symptoms, any systemic symptoms that could be related to underlying health conditions, and that we also need to be asking about any history of sexual dysfunction and taking a thorough drug history. There are two other important differential diagnoses to consider when presented with a man with a breast lump. The first is a primary breast tumour and the second is pseudogynecomastia. So we, in, as well as doing a thorough history, we also need to be doing a thorough examination, starting by examining the breast and trying to differentiate between these different causes of breast lumps. We need to be making sure to palpate all four quadrants and looking for signs of primary breast cancer such as irregular hard masses, nipple discharge or ulceration. And we also need to check for a mound of subareolar fibrous tissue, which is what we would expect to find in patients with gynecomastia. So you should ask the patient to lie on his back with his hands behind his head in the usual position that you'd examine the breasts in. And you then place your thumb and forefinger on either side of the breast and gradually bring them together from either side. In true gynecomastia, a rubbery or firm mound of tissue is palpable in the subareola area, and this mound of tissue is absent in pseudogynecomastia. Pseudogynecomastia is different from gynecomastia in that it develops as a result of excess adipose or fat tissue rather than enlargement of the glandular tissue, and it's more common in obese men. It's usually bilateral and it's not usually tender, whereas gynecomastia is usually unilateral and may be tender, excruciatingly so in some cases. We should also be looking for stigmata of chronic disease, so we need to do a more systemic examination as well. And also checking for any abdominal or ganomegaly, lymph node enlargement, and the article also recommends, and I think this is a really important point, a testicular examination, particularly if there's a suspicion of hypogonadism or a testicular mass. And if you do find a testicular mass, then a two-week wait referral to urology should be done. So we've had to think about our initial approach to a man with gynecomastia. And in particular, we thought about the important points in the history and findings that we want to look for in our examination. So now we're going to move on to thinking about who needs investigation and referral. We've discussed several benign causes of gynecomastia, so hopefully you can understand why it's not necessary to investigate and refer everyone. And current guidelines support this, 
and they're clear in recommending that we do not need to investigate newborns or adolescents with physiological gynecomastia. Older males with what's unfortunately unflatteringly termed senile gynecomastia. And we also don't need to investigate men with fatty pseudogynecomastia or men with drug-related gynecomastia. And in addition, we shouldn't be investigating those with suspected breast cancer. The nice guidance for referring men with breast changes is the same as for women. So anyone aged 30 and over with an unexplained breast lump, anyone over the age of 50 with nipple changes, this could be bloody discharge or ulceration, anyone with skin changes suggestive of breast cancer, or anyone over the age of 30 with an unexplained axillary lump should be referred urgently to the Rapid Access Breast Clinic. So we're not investigating physiological gynecomastia, drug-induced gynecomastia or pseudogynecomastia, and we're doing urgent referrals with those for red flags for, for suspected cancer, and that could either be testicular or a primary breast tumour. But what about those that don't fall into these categories? Well, the guidance advises that further investigation prior to referral should be undertaken for men with eccentric breast masses, rapid breast enlargement, a recent onset of gynecomastia in lean men over the age of 20, persistent painful gynecomastia, massive gynecomastia in adolescents, and persistent gynecomastia in adolescents. And this is defined as lasting more than 18 months. And these further investigations start with blood tests. And the recommendation is to check a 9am testosterone, as well as thyroid function, liver function, a beta HCG and an alpha feta protein. If the testosterone level is abnormal, then further hormone profiles assist our colleagues in secondary care. And so it's recommended that we then add on an LH and FSH, sex hormone binding globulin, albumin, prolactin and estradiol if we find that abnormal testosterone. And the guidelines also recommend that the presence of gynecomastia with an abnormal testosterone, thyroid function or LFTs should prompt a referral to endocrinology. Now, if either the beta-HCG or alpha-feta protein are abnormal, then an urgent referral to urology should be done. And these patients should also have an urgent testicular ultrasound scan. So just to summarise so far, we're not investigating benign causes of gynecomastia, that is physiological gynecomastia, drug-induced gynecomastia or pseudogynecomastia. We're doing urgent referrals if there are examination findings that are suspicious for breast cancer or if you find a testicular mass. And otherwise, we're considering blood tests with a 9am testosterone, thyroid and liver function, as well as a beta-HCG and alpha-feta protein. An abnormal testosterone, LFTs or TFTs would prompt a referral to endocrinology with further hormonal testing if the testosterone was abnormal. And an abnormal beta-HCG or alpha-feta protein would prompt an urgent referral to urology as well as an urgent ultrasound scan. 
Now, we've said we would refer those with red flags for malignancy directly to a rapid access breast clinic. There are a couple of other reasons to consider a referral to the breast team. So we'd also consider a referral to the breast team for those with persistent painful gynecomastia with normal blood tests and those with a unilateral lump at any age if either there was no obvious physiological or drug-induced cause or if there's a family history of breast cancer or a personal genetic predisposition to breast cancer. Now, I just wanted to finish with a little bit of a discussion about the management of gynecomastia and particularly what's available to us in primary care. So again, those with the physiological or pseudo-gynecomastia don't need any investigation or referral and really can be managed with reassurance and particularly some lifestyle advice. And what we're really advising patients to do is to aim for a normal body mass index. Drug-induced gynecomastia needs some careful discussion with the patient and really is a good opportunity for shared decision-making. So in some cases, the gynecomastia can be improved by stopping the precipitating or causative medication, though it's worth noting, as pointed out in this article, that if the breast tissue has already become fibrotic, then stopping the causative medication will stop the breast changes getting worse, but it won't improve the gynecomastia that's already present. And then there's obviously also going to be a balance that needs to be discussed with the patient between the benefit of continuing that medication, maybe in terms of symptom or disease control, and the ongoing issues caused by the gynecomastia. So in some cases, the symptom or disease control achieved by that medication may well outweigh the patient's concerns about the gynecomastia. And it may be that they're happy to continue with that medication once they've understood why the gynecomastia has occurred and that they're reassured that there's no underlying malignancy. For others, the physical or psychological impact of the gynecomastia may necessitate a change in their medication. Medical management with medications such as tamoxifen and anastrozole may have a place for those with non-pathological gynecomastia who either aren't getting better with a change in their medication if it was drug-induced or aren't resolving spontaneously. But it is worth pointing out that using these medications for the treatment of gynecomastia is currently unlicensed. And so the current guidance is that they should be used and prescribed only with secondary care advice and support. And finally, I've already alluded to the fact that gynecomastia can have a huge psychological and physical impact for some men, resulting in social anxiety, psychological distress and even significant pain. And in these patients, there may be a consideration for surgery. This is usually undertaken by the plastic surgeons um, rather than the breast surgeons, but funding can be a significant issue and will be very dependent on your local commissioning groups. So just to finish, I again wanted to highlight the very useful infographic produced by the Association of Breast Surgeons that takes us through a measured approach to the assessment, investigation and referral of men presenting with gynecomastia in primary care. I really hope that this podcast has been useful and helped to guide a safe and structured approach to this condition. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>